Hi, welcome to Chatting to a Friend. I'm Katie Friend and in this podcast I'm chatting to incredible women about their life experiences and adventures as well as their thoughts on friendship, community, self-care, setting boundaries and how they keep healthy, happy and sane. Today's guest, Jackie Hill Murphy, has spent the last 10 years researching female explorers of the 18th and mostly 19th centuries and then recreating their extraordinary and amazing expeditions. This episode is a little different to the others because as well as the incredible adventures and journeys that Jackie goes on, part of the fascination for me was in the stories of these women. In an era where they had almost no rights of their own, were expected to marry, wear dresses and corsets, they decided for a variety of reasons to take on arduous, dangerous journeys with little or no experience. In this chat, we discuss how she got into the fascinating field, what she's learned about the women and their discoveries, and also what she thinks they can bring to the 21st century woman. A lot of the chat, however, is good old rip-roaring adventures of the Victorian era, where these intrepid women struck out on their own and recorded their journeys, their near-death experiences and the cultures they discovered. And towards the end, I discover how Jackie is also helping adult care leavers to discover the great outdoors to aid their mental health and that charity is under the sky. And how she also supports a women's charity in Bristol that helps victims of domestic abuse, Womankind Bristol. Jackie has written three books on the subject. Two of them are available on her website, jackiehill-murphy.co.uk, and the third will be published in February 2021. You can follow her on Twitter at Jackie Hill Murphy, and all those Jackies are written without an E on the end. J-A-C-K-I. Enjoy. Hi, Jackie. How are you today? Oh, good morning. I'm fine. How are you? Very well indeed. Thank you. I, we were introduced by a mutual friend and I have absolutely just devoured your website. I, oh, it's so exciting. I want to know how on earth, I mean, I've read it, but for the benefit of the listeners, yes. how did you get into doing what you do? Well, first of all, what do you do and how did you get into it? Um, well, I guess I'm called an explorer, but it's a very strange expression because I don't believe there are too many virgin territories to explore in the world anymore but um i think it's uh the the mission to recreate the journeys of the first women explorers has driven me to some of the most extraordinary parts of the world and they've always been fairly remote and so that's been my quest for the last 10 years is to recreate their journeys as faithfully as possible and to find out about them as women um while doing it and 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 their environment and and why why they went and what they saw and, and what I see now when I go back to the same places and, and it also leads to how the world has changed, which I find very interesting. So it's that fusion of history and geography, which is my fascination. And what do you have to do lots of research before you go? I mean, looking at old maps and old manuscripts and so on, that must be fascinating. Oh, I do tons of research. Some of the expeditions have take, take a year to, to organise. Um, and I think that it, that time is really worthwhile, well, well spent, because you have to be in the know and you have to know what you're going into. And you ha- also have to stay safe. Mm. And that's been 
very important when I've been taking people with me because the reason I take people with me on these expeditions is I believe that I want to create opportunities for people. Mm. And I never found expeditions to go on. You know, after I'd after I'd brought up my son and, and had a career and then I could think about going out in the world and exploring, I found there was very little opportunities at the time for but particularly women my age, mm. to go off on an expedition. It was like, you know, well, okay, you can join, pay a lot of money and go on something that's organised, but that's that was never what I wanted to do. So I, so I would create my own team and take them with me. So does that answer your question? Yes, it does. And so when you say, I love the fact that you say a woman of my age and, you know, so much of what I talk to my guests about and and one of the reasons I do this is because I found you know I've I've interviewed a girl who was 19 when she cycled around the world and through all myriad of ages doing all sorts of things what do you feel that there's any barrier other than you said you know the, the cost of these expeditions for a woman of your age and I I say that only because that's what you said <laughs> yeah no no I'm I'm over 60 mm. I mean um um yeah it's really hot because n- not so much now because now we have wonderful organizations like Explorers Connect set up where it's much easier to come together and to organize expeditions and to have the help but when I was starting this over 10 years ago I didn't find any kind of infrastructure to help me mm. and most expeditions uh, for years have been geared towards people who um, are, are going off and doing field studies. They're PhD students, or you know, they they geared up around universities. And by taking people with me who had absolutely never done anything like that, it was an eye opener for them. And, and also, I like to share the experience. Didn't always go well, <laughs> to say though. <laughs> In what way? Oh, sometimes you just get the wrong people. Mm. You know, one thing I've learned now is that if you take people out of their comfort zone, it brings out the worst in them. (laughs) (laughs) And and things surface that actually you never realise were there. Mm. And and I'm very aware of that now. And do you mostly take only women? No, not really. No, No, um, I I had a a mixture when I travelled the length of the Amazon River. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that was a very special journey. I mean, to, to take the time out to go the length of the Amazon River, we were gone a couple of months. There's not many people who have got the resources or able to step off their careers to be able to go some of two months. So I was, I was lucky that I, I got who I got for that. And so you said, you know, when you took this on, obviously there was a fascination in the geography and the history, but obviously in the, the challenges faced by these women and to get to know them as people. Do you feel that in the expeditions you've done, you've really got to grips on every single one with the character and the the challenges faced? Or is it not a given that you will come back with that sort of much closer knowledge? Oh, that's such a good question. I, I absolutely feel that I got to know all of them really well. But some of them wrote um, wonderful um, books. And and I I think the number one thing I have realised about the women explorers is that in the 19th century, they were exploring culture. And during the 19th century, generally, men were out there exploring continents to expand our empire. And And so the women wrote 
like for example, Mary Kingsley, Isabella Bird, um, and others wrote the most amazing uh, accounts of everything they saw, which now is amazing to have that resource to draw on. Also helped me to get to know them. And, and also, they don't tell a lot about their personal life, but you can find out a bit about what they were wearing and how they got there. And I, mm. and I think that maybe Isabella Bird has got to be the most fascinating because her accounts of the cultures that she saw were truly spectacular. Mm-hmm. And and if you want to know about what life was like before and after the American Civil War, or read one of her books because it's all there in absolutely beautiful detail. Uh-huh. Um, and I think we forget that. But but actually, I've just written her book, her biography, which is mm-hmm. coming out on February the twenty eighth, um, about um, the adventures of Isabella Bird. And I, I my focus was on why she did such dangerous things and which made her very happy when she was abroad and when she was traveling Mm. and for example she um when she was in in japan she she would um she would face floods that would nobody nobody else would ever consider going through the, the sort of floods that she would go and she would ride on the back of her her yezo net um guide who who would be naked and you think about this is like a four foot eleven woman who normally looked a bit like um queen victoria (laughs) um she when she was when she was in china she would be followed by so many people wearing clogs that she would she described the sound like a hailstorm behind her because they were so fascinated in, in seeing a foreign woman. Wow. What a beautiful description. They vied for a glimpse of mm-hmm. this foreigner. I mean, they, they'd never seen one before. And that, to us now, is unbelievable, that she would withstand, even having things thrown at her because they thought that she was bad news being mm. a foreigner, that something would drive her on to keep on going deeper and deeper down the Yangtze or into Japan or into the, South and North Korea, to see more when she was getting this sign of a welcome it's and then of course there was no modern communications she had no good travel equipment when she um when she traveled uh, around that area of korea china and japan on that particular part of her journey she would leave baggage in different places Mm. and at, at one point she got back to Korea to go and collect her things from Seoul to go and do traveling and she found that and and to to obviously to top up on her money where she had it somewhere and the Japanese had just invaded and she was told to get out by the by the governor straight away and all she had on was a tweed suit and that's all she had with her was it with a tweed suit she stood up in and no money I mean Again, we it's unimaginable to us now, isn't it? Incredible. But unless she'd done that, unless she'd unless she'd gone through that, we would never have that account of what that world was like that she saw. And so, in terms of, I love, I really love that uh, thing that you said that the men were expanding territories and conquering the world, but the women that you have experienced or you have studied, they were they were really interested in exploring the culture. 
and the people and the and the uh, the traditions yes definitely definitely and and it's been a great thrill to me that in recreating their journeys i have on occasion been able to experience the same ancient ceremony which has been thrilling but it, i in with globalization i'm not even sure how much longer even those little ceremonies are going to be around for because for example when i crossed the himalayas walked across the himalayas in ladakh in the footsteps of isabella bird mm-hmm. i came across a little lady living underground in one of the mountain passes mm. and this was not a place where people really go it was like this is really really off the beaten track my guide talked to her and she invited us into her her little subterranean house mm. we went in through a tunnel and got right in underneath and she was living there entirely on her own <clears throat> and she gave me butter tea which is you know quite it's not really like a cup of tea that we know <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't taste well but Isabella Bird wrote about drinking butter tea so how much longer can a traveler like me go mm. and find somebody who's who's still going to serve butter tea because the world is changing so fast roads were coming in to all those places where I walked on foot it through mm. those passes um what a pleasure that is and to see her little washing up bowl by a stream Mm. and you think that this is this is not poverty this is rich culture this is how these this lady lives and the same thing happened on the amazon when i walked to kenalos on the footsteps of isabella godan the mm-hmm. first woman down the amazon and i have a photograph of a little stream with a shower curtain up and again the little bar of soap on a rock and you just mm. think that is so precious that is so precious because that's how those people live and those people are very happy to live that way i mean that's fresh mm. running water that's yeah. that's what a nice bathroom apart from the fact that it probably would have a caiman in it now and again but you know, <laughs> i just think that i've it's been a great pleasure to be able to record those things yeah it's funny you should mention that because quite a lot of the women i speak to have been as one of them put it put themselves in the face of adversity to experience you know whatever it might be challenging rowing the pacific or sailing around the world or or whatever it might be and so many of them talk about how when they come back it's this you know it's not fussing over the, the the small things it's appreciating how little you have you know having little is better than having so much stuff especially as it's part of your culture and your community and there is a richness in that Mm. yes definitely I mean if if, if the people that I saw were you know they were living off the land they had enough to eat they were fortunate for that but they had this wonderful culture and this wonderful you know family life apart from that lady in in Ladakh who who's whose sons had gone to live in the city and her husband had died, you know. But, mm. um, but yes, all right, you, you have to put yourself out to get those, find those little snapshots of life, yeah. which, of course, the women explorers that I recreate, they absolutely did that. And they faced, they faced so many problems because they, there was you know, no kind of 
there was there was no jabs against this or that, was mm. there? <laughs> no. <laughs> Because no, to... you know, I read about it was Isabella Godin. There's a lot of Isabellas, just by the it's way. It's very extraordinary, isn't it? The <laughs> Isabella, the Isabella factor of it in female explorers is quite strong. And my grandmother was called Isabella. Oh, funny. <laughs> yes. So I saw I, Isabella Godin just before she started her journey. As you know, she lost all four children to yeah. various um, epidemics that had that happened at the yeah. time. So you're right; they faced incredible hardship and nothing that we know today you know as you say the waterproofs the Gore-Tex and the the things what sort of teams did they generally have in support of them and were they seen as the leader of the team that's 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 another very good question well um the support was the support that they hired Mm. Mary Kingsley always went off alone and the reason that she climbed Mount Cameroon was because when she was um, sailing down the side of the West African coast towards Gabon, because she did, she when her when her parents died and she was on her own, she found herself with a small amount of money. All she wanted to do was to go off and travel. She didn't. Her only other alternative was probably to go into a loveless marriage. Mm. You know, it, this. This little project I've been on has really, really shown me how unpleasant life could be for spinsters in Victorian times and that any alternative was better than to stay in England Mm. and maybe have to work in domestic servitude. So Mary Kingsley went to Gabon because that's what she knew about through her father's books. And she Mm -hmm. wasn't educated, but she was able to read and write. So she saw Mount Cameroon and she asked the captain if she could, stop and get off and he said oh no ma'am that's no picnic but she wasn't deterred she got she got off at Cameroon off the ship and she pulled together a a small party because she had to pay them to take her up the mountain and they didn't believe that this English woman would climb a mountain for example nobody ever went up there certainly no women Mm. now she had the leadership skills to pull together these men and who kept running off all the time and she kept them. She she kept bringing them back, and um, they actually got well. Only she got to the top of the mountain, but she had been brought up very strictly, and she had no experience of men apart from her brother. So where did she get that experience from? Mm. You know, it's it is it is most extraordinary, and um, the same with um, Isabella Godin in seventeen sixty nine. Her journey down the Amazon River. Her father had laid out all the plans and he'd gone ahead down this tributary of the Amazon called the Bobanaza, mm-hmm. then the Pastaza, to uh, – he'd laid the way. He'd, he'd paid the, the, the men. He bought them. He made sure the boats were there and that the food would be there for this very, very long journey to a ship that was waiting on the border between uh, Brazil and Peru in mm-hmm. Tabatinga. And so she, all she had to do was to literally be carried on a pannequin mm. f- across the Andes in, it, it was then Peru, but it's now Ecuador, then transfer from mountain Indians to, to jungle Indians who would then paddle her all the way down to the ship. So that was a journey of about over a thousand miles. Mm. Wow. But her father took smallpox, infected everyone with smallpox. <sighs> So, so therefore, it, the whole expedition fell apart for her, and she ended up being the only survivor. And again, she had no survival skills. 
None whatsoever. She could. They, none of her party could swim, but she had with her her brothers, her nephew, her ladies' maids, and a, a collection of of other people who probably shouldn't have been there. None of them. Yeah, <laughs> none of them knew how to wield a machete. Knew how to look for food. Knew how to swim. Knew how to make a, a, a raft. And so when they arrived at the same point that I did, Canelos, in the Amazon jungle of, of Ecuador, my canoe was there waiting for me. Hers wasn't. It's quite sad, really. It's a very sad story. <laughs> but she did get to the ship, but she was lost in the jungle for six weeks first, and everybody around her died. <sighs> so in terms of preparation, how would they be able to prepare in 1769 for something they didn't know about? Extraordinary. And how did she avoid all those arrows that would have been shot from the side of the of the of the riverbank, you know, yeah. at them as they went by? It's incredible. It is incredible. And I just to go quickly back to to something you said about Mary Kingsley, uh, you know, of trying to avoid a loveless marriage after her parents died. I I studied medieval history when I was at university, oh, so yes. I did, and I did women's history as part of that which I absolutely love mainly because I had the the most incredible teacher which always helps yes and what I loved and one of the things I studied most was about how women certainly in medieval times and I suspect largely into the era that you are interested in you know there was a you went from your father to either your husband or to God as in yeah. you got married yeah. and had children yeah. and did what you were supposed yeah. to do or you became a nun. And, That's you right. know, sometimes there was almost that, you know, going to be a nun and going to God was almost more freedom. And so I find it absolutely, I, I love that, the fact that, she, you know, she just said, actually, none of the above, thanks very much. <laughs> I think that's amazing. I think I think that many of them were like that. And, that, and they saw how desperate women's lives were mm. at that time. But what was great about it, Mary Kingsley is that when she got back from her African travels, she had a lot, she was a very intelligent woman, and she had a lot to say about what she saw and about the way that the local people were being treated. Mm. And she wanted to, she wanted to verbalise those feelings, you know, for example, it, it was it was just horrendous the way that the way that the, the governors that she saw in Cameroon like mm. treated the locals. They would just they would just treated them like slaves. It was horrendous. Yeah. So she wanted to make comments about that, and she spoke behind closed doors to the Church of England and to the government. But I mean, you know, the government really didn't want to hear all this mm. because you know the colonies were very important. But she. Now, at the time, this was the 1890s, there was a movement, a slight movement towards life-changing for women, like because of the bicycle, the hems mm. had gone up. Women could go a bit further away from fear, from home because of the bicycle. They didn't have to be with, with somebody, chaperone, because they had that little bit of freedom. Clothes were becoming more, they called it, aesthetic. Mm-hmm. It was a bit like a kind of like, a bit of a hippie movement. You see what I mean? You know, for example, Oscar Wilde's wife was very much part of that. But she would not go down that road because she wanted to be taken seriously. So she always wore the most somber clothes in her 30s and had this quite serious exterior because she wanted to be taken seriously. And I think it's really important that she did that and, mm. and voiced her opinions about 
the treatment of local people. And, and you know, she was saying they are, they are, you know, they're no different to us. They're yeah. just as intelligent as us. And it was something that, that men had to get their head around, really, wasn't it? Well, yes, because as you, you said earlier, and we've, we've mentioned it, that, you know, men's predominant, we are generalising, obviously, but their interest was expanding the territories, the colonies and, yeah. you know, yeah. ruling with an iron fist, not necessarily interested in getting to know the peoples that they were exactly. subjugating. So um, I'm interested to know about the class of these women. So there presumably was a bit of money behind these things, these expeditions. <sighs> Well, Isabella Bird funded her trips through her books because they sold really well, which was great. And in, and in fact, she, she set up five hospitals, charity hospitals in India, Pakistan and Japan because she had some money and she, she was wanted to be altruistic with it. Um, Mary Kingsley had this small amount of money she inherited but others, it wasn't quite so easy. Um, they had to find different ways of funding themselves. And so I think they had to really push the boat out to be able mm. to do it and, and be willing to do it as cheaply as possible. Um, there, is, there is a <laughs> Lady Flory Dixie. Have you, I don't know if you heard of her. No. Lady Flory Dixie was an extremely rich lady. And she took her whole family. I think that they all grew up in Norfolk in Holcombe Hall or something. And her brother was Lord Queensbury. They all went to Patagonia. Now, mm. wouldn't that be a lovely trip to replicate, going to Patagonia? Mm, and then went yeah. horseback. But all they went to do was to shoot animals. Oh. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> now, that would, we would go now and shoot film, wouldn't we? Yes. <laughs> so, you know, when I read Lady Flory's book, Lady Dory, Flory Dix's book, I just think, Actually, I don't think you're very nice people. <laughs> First of all, she left her baby behind. She didn't see it for months. And then they just galloped over the Patagonian plains, just shooting anything they could, even taking pox shots at, um, at lovely birds of prey that went overhead. I mean, just totally unnecessary killing. Um, but that what was with sort lots of, era of money. What that? That was, again, it was the 19th century. Right. That was probably the 1860s. And do you find, because, you know, when I hear you say that, and I agree, you know, but the, nobody was aware of extinction. Nobody was aware that, you know, no, there were no sort of ethical barriers not, to that sort of not thing. Not at all. And so have you found with, obviously, these women are incredibly uh, inspiring and magnificent amounts of gumption to go and do what they did. But have you come across ones where, in other cases, you've gone, yeah, I'm not sure that I would be doing that these days. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, you mean the, their behaviour? Their behaviour. And I mean, obviously, we just talked about, was it Mary Kingsley that was in Cameroon and spoke out for the, the local population, which is incredible. But there must be others that you that had questionable in our modern frame, you know, framework. Were there? Um, well, yes, I suppose someone like um, Maud Parrish, who um, who came from California, <laughs> her father married her after something she didn't like, so she ran away to, jo to join the, the Klondike era in Alaska and ended up travelling the whole length of the Yukon River playing the banjo <laughs> to make a living. <laughs> I, I think that's a bit questionable. <laughs> but she was such a feisty character. Mm -hmm. And um, 
she only died in 1976. She died a very old woman and, and she just absolutely just did whatever she wanted. But that was a pretty interesting time to be in Alaska. And I have tried to arrange, uh, organize doing that journey, um, but there are no boats at all that can t- t- go down the Yukon anymore. And in her time, there was about 100 steam paddle wow. chips. And uh, because it was all the Klondike era, it was all the, the gold miners. And now there are very small pockets of communities along the Yukon. And it's a very difficult trip to do because there's so many bears about yeah. and you'd have to take a gun. And I'm not sure I want to do that. <laughs> yeah, because then you become the lady from Patagonia. <laughs> then you can end up as Lady Flory Dixie. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think that another very fascinating lady was um, Lady Florence Baker. And I don't think I'd like to do it her way either. Um, she was a freed white slave. She was sort of Hungarian as a very young girl. Her um, The British explorer, Sir Samuel Baker, who probably was one of those explorers trying to expand our empire. But anyway, he snatched her from the slave auction mm. and the rest of their lives, they became inseparable. And his, his uh, role was later on in life was I mean, he was paid by the British government to do it was to try and stop the flow of slaves coming up from southern Sudan and going up into Egypt so he was oh. trying to set up slave forts along the way to try and stop the flow uh, I think he was trying they were trying to they were trying to they were trying to break down the what's the word I'm looking for the administration of it along the way the people that upheld what was going on and so by setting up slave forts you're in a good position to try and work with the local people to try and stop what they were doing Mm. which meant making trying to make friends with with warlords and that came at a cost because they nearly lost their lives trying to do that and at the end they had to run after months of negotiation with a particular warlord tribal lord they had to run for it and I think that Florence Baker had an absolutely horrible life out there doing that. There were apparently many times that her grave was dug because she knew he died of malaria. Mm. She died in Devon, actually, which was – she did live out her life with Sir Samuel Baker in Devon, somewhere like Budley Chilterton, whatever it's called, in Devon. But anyway – her part in it was fantastic because she would actually remove the chains and shackles off these of these young these women and and children most importantly yeah. and uh, and you know they would sort of adopt her as mother and things like that which was which was lovely but to do it that way oh my goodness that was that was real adversity with the way that she had to live what do you because you obviously you are talking about more people than I have come across in your works and your you know your website. Yeah. How do you decide? Do you often, like you said, you'd like to do redo the the Florid, Floridixie? Is that it? Uh, Patagonia. Yeah. Um, no, sorry, the one in the Yukon. You'd like to do it, but there's no boat. So oh, M- Maud Parish. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what? You know, do you often sort of get somewhere along the line to going? Yeah this is the next one I'd like to follow and then it just isn't possible? Or how do you triage? You have to have funding. Yeah, you'd have to have funding for mm-hmm. that Yukon one. That would have to be released. I need to have a start and a finish point. I can't mm. do wandering. 
that that's not very satisfying. So all of the journeys I've, rec- I've recreated have had a definite start point and a definite end point that I and I've tried to do it at the same time of year as yeah. the woman explorer. So I can really feel the seasons and feel, you know, the way they did. Um, Patagonia would be getting a, a horse and just wandering around. And you, you cannot do yeah. that. You cannot travel in Patagonia now without a guide along specific right. routes. So that it's not possible. And a lot of this is not possible um, because the world is obsessed now with health, uh, health and safety or is better closed off or, you know, we have visas. So we don't have the freedom that they had, especially Isabella Bird, mm. the freedom just to pitch up somewhere, hire a horse and yeah. just go off. I have done a little survey to see where in the world that would be possible mm. to do that without having to hire gauchos to look after you and hire the horse or, or even buy the horse. And I, I think that um, pretty much Mongolia is the only way to, place that you could turn up and get a horse and just wander off. It's very difficult. So that's, that's a, kind of like a big major thing, really, isn't it, is, is our freedom to travel is different. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the irony that they had more freedom than we do, given... The, the restrictions of their time it's quite extraordinary <laughs> yeah but and now we have better kit of course don't we so that slightly compensates for it but and i'm not going to do it all in a thin cotton dress with a corset underneath. Uh, not so much no <laughs> do you have like your dream list are you st- are there still are there hundreds of them are there tens of them what's the sort of i'm trying mm. to grasp the sort of size of the the pool that you would be interested in following? Oh, well, uh, there are, there are a lot, there are a lot. And I, but, but I'm mostly interested in the 19th century mm. because I find that Victorian era fascinating. And, and mm. it's funny enough, it's been the 1890s is the era that I've, I seem to recreate. Um, yes, there are, there are ones that I mm. still want to do and choosing them is difficult. And of course, funding is difficult. The moment I'm turning my eyes to Africa again, I, have begun to do some mm. recceing for Mary Slessor in Calabar in Nigeria. Now, Mary Slessor was a Scottish Presbyterian missionary who got sent to Calabar in the 19, mid-19th century. Oh, I'd say about probably the 1870s, 80s. Ooh. And she went out there to try and stop infanticide because what they did was they um, they thought that twins carried a devil. One of them was a devil. So they would kill both babies. This was very much um, Mm. superstition and superstition that endured through, you know, went on for years. And so she went out there and, and she faced, faced them. And she faced these quite aggressive tribes in Calabar, which is, that's, it's called Cross Rivers now. It's, probably around the region of where we know as Biafra, that area there. And she personally saved 51 babies and the mothers because the mothers would be cast out as well. But, but most importantly, she changed their way of thinking that this was unnecessary and it wasn't true. But they also used to kill each other a lot. And she would this little Scottish woman would face up to them. She spent the rest of her life out there with them, living with them, and putting herself enormous risk. And I I am I'm trying to organise, you know, COVID has got in the way, a trip with um, with Nigerian women. And we're going to go in further up into Calabar than I've already been 
and we're going to uh, look for stories, look for stories of and, and find her mission houses and, and just find the descendants of those children that she saved. And, you know, that's that's really exciting. I, I have last year I, I did spend a day in Calabar and I, I found one of her mission houses. So that's something I'm trying to do. I also would quite like to walk the Baker Trail mm-hmm. from Uganda to Sudan, Florence Baker. Yeah. I told you about the, the where she had to run away from the tribes. That would be very exciting. And again, I would like to do that with African women. And I'd like to have that discussion about our freedom on the way. Mm. You know, that's how our world has changed and how free are we. But of course, you know, I'm not talking just about slavery, talking about our lives. So, um, that's that's going on now for mm-hmm. me. Uh, we just we just need to get out of this difficult part, um, difficult yeah. era we're in. <laughs> in perfect time the history for of the perfect world. time for writing books and starting a podcast. <laughs> well, and yes, all sorts of things. That's exactly that's right. Um, that's right. So I have oh so many questions. I wanted to ask you first of all. You say you're concentrating on the 1890s because so much was happening then. What was happening? before that or around then that suddenly made it more accessible for these women what in in their in in industry or in history was happening oh i think that it was very oppressive for women still mm. at that time you know but um the 1890s is when we had the suffragists was set up which was the the forerunner of the suffragettes mm-hmm. so there began to be this discussion about um about liberalism and you know women were, were were talking and there was the first the first women only restaurant was set up in London which Gosh. is called Dorothy's it's opposite where Selfridges is now there's a little Omega jewelry shop and that's that's the first female only restaurant and people would, again, women could go in there and they'd be able to use the lavatory now I know it sounds ridiculous but being able to use a public convenience was very important to a woman because mm. then she didn't have to go scurrying back home because it was that was like a restraint on her that she had to get back home to go to the toilet, <sighs> and 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 it was quite um, it was quite shocking to have a public toilet that people women could use in in the nineteenth century. That seems extraordinary to us now, doesn't it? Mm, yeah, <clears throat> um, I think that there was a a request in um, one of the first department stores for a, a women's um, lavatory, and it was turned down. Ah. He thought that <clears throat> it wasn't a good idea. So you had this restaurant that women could talk about things at long last, you know, and mm. and, and that led, that was really where the sort of new woman was spawned in, mm. in that, that area, you know, that part of London and particularly Dorothy's restaurant. And in the window, it had interesting, like, kind of peacock feathers and Indian kind of fabrics, and it was ah. hugely fascinating. And yeah. and Punch had a, um, were, were very rude about it because, you know, men <laughs> yeah. were excluded. And, you know, I think that was very exciting. And, of course, I've mentioned the bicycle. Yes, of course. And then we had the first women's newspaper, the, for the, edited by women, and, and that was really difficult because men didn't want to share their experiences with women. It was a man's job to produce a newspaper. 
And then you had the suffragists turned into the suffragettes. Mm -hmm. And then we all know what happens after that, Mm -hmm. don't we? And what do you think these women could achieve when they went on these expeditions that perhaps men couldn't? I mean, we've talked about it being interested in culture and the people and, and, and you find so much even nowadays that women can get closer often than men because well, everybody trusts a woman sort of thing. But I'm wondering whether that's the same because you said I've read and you said that quite a lot of these women were regarded with total mistrust because a foreign woman travelling on her own was a bit bizarre. But not always, though. Uh-huh. I mean, um, if we talk about Isabella Bird, who I think is the greatest gatherer of culture, um, she was very embraced in, in America, North America and Hawaii. She spent a lot of time in Hawaii and totally documented everything she saw in Hawaii. And this is like before the first tourists practically. And that was a lovely time for her, really. And she, she was, she was mm. a very unwell woman. And so she felt very well in these countries. And, 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 and again, the freedom helped her to feel better as well. So... I think that there was a mixture of who is this, you know, the mistrust of of a of a, a woman in their midst, but there was also the embracing of her as well. Mm. And a, and a, of course, America was just such a mixture of different people, anyway, mm. of different nationalities. But she actually witnessed seeing some of those covered wagons you know, that went trundling across the. Colorado in through Colorado and she she witnessed them for herself she she saw those migrants mm-hmm. and she was very rude about the the Indians because of course she was picking up on what other people were saying mm. which is a bit disappointing really that they mm. weren't they didn't feel they could say what they wanted to say they just, she she was very rude about the, you know they what the their perceptions of you know the squaws and the Indians and living in wigwams, but she did visit villages with them and go in a wigwam. But yeah, but to but to see those those things was fantastic. To see the first American railways being built, incredible, and and witnessing those and then going to the end of the line and thinking I can't go any further and then <laughs> taking what other other transport she could and exposing herself to quite a lot of danger along the way. Of course, because they were a lot, you know, it's quite a rough, rough place, really, yeah. where those railways were being built. And Not called the Wild so she, West for nothing. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it was the Wild West that she witnessed. And she fell in love with a Wild West man, actually. But it wasn't right for a nice Victorian lady to have an affair with um, with with somebody as notorious as as. Jim Nugent, who was the man that I mean, they obviously did fall in love with each other, but it was unheard of for her to stay there and live in a shack with some man with such a bad reputation. He was a bit of a drunk, and <laughs> so she had to leave him. But I think that broke her heart. Actually, I think that's the closest she ever got to love. I'm interested in what you've learned that you can bring back to the modern woman, because I talk to a lot of explorers, and a lot of the same things come up. And I'm quite interested to know what you feel that these women could teach us even in this day and age to be an observer Mm. to be a listener um to to write down everything you see even in the tiniest flicker of a flame with one hair of a little tiny pen to write it down what you've seen so that you can document it later even today that's really really important i mean i'm writing at the moment i'm 
about traveling across Africa in 1988. And I've got all these scrawling notes in diaries and if I hadn't written them I, I would never have remembered all those things mm. that happened but yes being an observer and being a listener and being able to withstand the most horrible conditions and being mm. wet and being tired and being cold and it's at those times that you have the best encounters I think mm. now and when and then when you are absolutely feeling so shattered and you just all you want to do is crawl into a sleeping bag somewhere that's the time when you have the most precious experiences I find and I think it was true for them and do you think that's because your guard is down a little bit no I, I, I think it's because when you're traveling you never know who you're going to see or what's going to happen mm. and sometimes things happen that you that are just amazing and you you've just got to be there and take it all in because there's so much in this day and age about, you know, telling your story. And, and a lot of what I'm trying to achieve with this podcast is to get women to tell their stories. Because women, you know, the women I'm interviewing, you've all experienced and, and achieved incredible things and doing such extraordinary things. But it's just it's so important that the stories are told that apart from all the achievements and the the, the razzmatazz that goes around it, that it's the stories, the little stories people's lives especially women of all ages talking about things that make them human yes yes and and isn't it nice that we can see that these women were human mm. and that they we, we we know about them now because I have to say they were very unapplauded in their own time I can imagine and and that was very sad and you you think about um the Royal Geographical Society did not want female fellows it fought it you know and in the end they 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 capitulated and they did have them but you know that's it it was this this sense of well it it, uh, it, exploration is a man's world Mm. and yeah it's very sad I mean I mean what we person we haven't mentioned is Kate Marsden Mm. who um crossed Siberia Oh, extraordinary. By sledge and horseback. She probably did the hardest, most arduous journey ever known for a woman across Siberia through all, on sledge and tarantas, which is a, a kind of pulled by a horse through when snow is thawing. And it's hugely uncomfortable. And having been pitched out in the middle of a night of a sledge pulled by a horse mm. into the snow that was being driven by a man who was hidden vodka the whole way and mm. you know you two went minus 60 degrees and incredible but but what she did was she highlighted the way that the russians were treating their lepers yeah if she hadn't made their that journey and an english woman going out there to look at the way that they treated their lepers and it alerted the attention of the chief medical officer and the bishop and people out in eastern Siberia. If she hadn't done that, they would have continued just to cast their lepers out into the snow and forget about them. But because of her, a, a leper colony was built, the first one in eastern Siberia. But sadly, she had so many people, that detractors who didn't like her, mm. that she spent the rest of her life um, extremely unhappy by, because of, she was vilified by the press. I, I read that, yeah, because you've written a whole book just on her, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I wrote her. I, th- I felt her story had to be told, really, because it was very sad for somebody to, to end up dying in poverty and obscurity who had done such a great thing. 
you know, and she met Queen Victoria and Queen Victoria supported her. But it only took one person who decided that she didn't like her and she was going to destroy her to to post kind of inaccurate information about her to just to destroy somebody. I mean, and she just she could never recover from it. And she never went out and saw her own leper colony that wow. she fun, fundraised for. She never went out to see it. She would love to have seen it. Um, but the St. Francis Leprosy Guild, it was set up by here and still exists today, which is a really good thing. And it, oh, that, that still exists wow. in London. And they help people all, all over the world because there is still leprosy in the world, even though we now that wow. know that antibiotics does cure it. But there is, it is there in the world. But her story is mind-boggling, really, that that she was willing to go through all that because she believed in highlighting the plight of lepers. Incredible. I'm lost for words, which it doesn't often happen to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. um, and I, so moving on from your incredible women of the past, because yeah. I could keep talking to you about this for hours and hours. But um, I wanted to talk to you about something you've done quite recently because you are in the fortunate position where you have a couple of charities or a couple of um, associations that you support. Would you like to tell us a little bit about them? I'm director of Under the Sky Events, which harnesses this idea of how adventures in the outdoor helps people with mental health issues. Mm. And so... I was asked to set it up by a trust and our our adventures are for people that were brought up in care, like in children's homes or foster care. And very many have had really traumatic childhood. So we're pretty much with the Reese Foundation I work with, the only charity that looks after older people who have you know been out of care for many years and gives them an opportunity to have and experience outdoors and it really does work you know that a walk in the woods brings on seven hours of happiness is very true you know so um I, this year was very difficult mm. to 2020 to, to run our holidays but we do have um a really interesting program worked out for next year where we where we use things that we know are very good therapy for people with mental health issues like for example we have fishing camp or surfing or mm. you know of course trekking is involved in everything we do and we try and engage people with nature and we try and get them to find a connectiveness with nature which they didn't have before and that connectiveness with nature gives them something else to think about to bring them out of themselves and that, and to love nature mm. and, and to want to protect it and especially with people who live in inner city situations for example, we took a lad camping last year who'd never seen the sea, had never been out to the countryside Gosh. because he lived in London. He'd missed every opportunity that came his way to get out and he'd found himself in his 20s never really having had those experiences. And so now he says that he, he's going to get out there all the time and, and, and that's lovely. Mm. So that's the sort of outcomes that, that we like. So that is doing really well. And I, I'm also a patron of... Um, Womankind, Bristol Women's Therapy Centre. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly important at the moment because there are women who um, have are suffering behind closed doors, mm -hmm. especially through lockdown, and children, mm -hmm. of course. W Bristol Women's Therapy Centre offers a very discreet helpline to people. It can be online or it can be phone or it can be one-to-one -one, and offering helping to offer solutions to those people. Mm -hmm. 
to uh, improve their lives or at least to make them, you know, just have someone to talk to. So in August, I, I walked for three days around Bristol and I was distributing a little card with a phone number that, you know, if they knew anybody that was in difficulty to give it to them. And that was enlightening, the amount of people that took the card and gave me a look. And I think, yeah, okay. Mm. I know why you're looking at me like that. You know, and it, it's the domestic abuse is something that happens to everybody or can happen to is no, there's no age yeah. limit. There is no, you know, the, 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 it doesn't matter how much money you have or how much you don't, you know, it's, it's happening out there. And, and I'm very proud to be able to help womankind. That is a, a really, really important thing because it was actually one of the first things I thought of when we went into lockdown at the beginning of this year. I thought to myself, oh, and, and it's not something, thankfully, that has ever happened to me, but I just thought all these people stuck in homes with abusive partners yeah. it, it, under the pressure and not being able to get yeah. out and having no one to phone, it just must be extraordinary. So yeah. that is must be a massive lifeline for, for women. That's extraordinary. And it's all run by female volunteers. Oh. They are an amazing group of people, womankind. You know, kind of compassion oozes out of all of them. It's just a fantastic setup. And, um, and yeah, they, they have done some incredible work, helped a lot of, a lot of people. Brilliant. Yeah. And so just to round off, you have your new book coming out um, on Isabella Bird. When is that yes. due out? February the 28th is a fearless Isabella Bird and her adventures. It's, it's, I, I think it's interesting what she went, what she did. Mm. Very interesting. And I hope people enjoy reading it. Oh, I can't yes. wait. It sounds amazing. Yes. I've, I've loved the, yes. what I have read of your, I haven't read Kate Morrison, but I've read uh, The Adventuresses and it's just, uh, it's breathtaking. It's extraordinary. So that's great. So uh, Isabella Bird, sorry, what's the full title? The, the, the It's the, the Life and Travels of Isabella Bird. But most of all, it's really talking about how her adventures helped her health, really. Oh, wow. Her. Oh, that's interesting. Adventuring helped her help health mentally and physically. Wow. Um, and, and really talk about adventures that we pretty much can't have today, which are completely awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And I don't know I mean, how many times that she nearly died in, a sh- in shipwrecks. And oh, my it goodness. It didn't stop her. And getting on another ship, you know, ships are very dodgy in those days, <laughs> yeah. and totally unseaworthy and full of the most disgusting vermin. <laughs> and, <laughs> so, and human beings, I can imagine as well, to oh some extent. <laughs> I, I think that, yeah, yes, that's right. That, uh, cockroaches like the size of small children. <laughs> oh, oh, my God, it's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> And so, and we can follow you on um, Instagram, Facebook. How do, what's the best place to follow what you're up to next? Yeah, on my Twitter, I should think, really. Yes. Just my name, Jackie Hill Murphy, on my website, or talk. And one last thing, if people fancy joining you, is that something they can do? I do sometimes, yes. I do, I, but, but um, I would definitely have to meet them first. <laughs> Yeah, no, quite right. You need. Uh, t- I was talking to an ocean rower recently, and she they put a lot of time and effort into their team dynamics yeah, because exactly. they were on an eight and a half meter boat for nine months. Can you imagine? Oh <gasps> my goodness! And someone who doesn't get seasick as well. 
Awesome. Well, I will put all that in the show notes, make sure it's all spelt properly. And Jackie, thank you. What a fascinating, fascinating subject of major life's work. I, I just is absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you for helping me to share the stories of these amazing women. Thank you so much. Uh, my absolute pleasure. And I look forward to the new book uh, in February. Yep. Lovely. Thank you so much, Katie. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back next week with another incredible episode of Chatting to a Friend. In the meantime, please give us a follow on Instagram, Chatting to a Friend, for all the latest news. Bye-bye.